Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Bug Eyes Rock Pop Rambles. This is episode 10, I think, Paula. It is indeed, sound of klaxons. I know, we've managed to actually pull something together every week for 10 weeks. I'm really impressed. Me too. You sound it by that pause. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm Angela from the band Bug Eye and I'm with, with Paula this week. And we have some special guests joining us. From God is in the TV, we have James and Bill, who also run the amazing podcast called Show Me Magic. So, hi guys. Hello. Hello. Here they are. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're dead. We're dead pleased to have them on the show. We're quite quite big fans of what what they've been doing. And I was a guest on their show last week, which is actually this week's episode. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. We, yeah, yeah. we sort of work uh, a week ahead. You know, schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same. Same. So, so for people who don't know what your podcast is about, would you, would you like to summarise that? It's a new music recommendations podcast. Um, we kind of started it out of the uh, the lockdown, didn't we, James and mm. uh, Jim? <laughs> I should call him Jim. Um, <laughs> we we kind of started during the lockdown, and we wanted to sort of you know bring up the new music that we loved and have a chat about it, basically. And it's kind of gone from there, and we've done about seven episodes now. Recorded seven, haven't we? Yeah. yeah, seven's out this week. We've brought up things like classic tracks into it now mm-hmm. as well, cult classics. Yeah, where we try and convince people that they're classics from the past. <laughs> so that's an interesting topic as well. It's ever evolving. Um, yeah, and you know, we, we've also started bringing in like bigger releases. While we d- we had a little chat about Oasis's new demo and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's uh, expanding. I suppose you could loosely say it's based on Round Table, but. We're yeah, a bit more, I'd say we're a bit more like honest, brutal, would you say sometimes? <laughs> can be. We bring it in ourselves, don't we? So a, it's not but, like the brand new releases that they're having to sort of play. Yeah. We bring them in and we slag and each other's to, choices on. It tends to be really new music as well, doesn't it, mate? Is it? Well, yeah. Tends. Yeah, but that's, I mean, that's what I like about the show is that it's, it's quite honest. It's not just, you know, arse kissing. Mm. Yeah really so try you know. not to <laughs> i mean generally it is stuff that we like so well, we're yeah. sort of giving our opinion on the stuff but that we we sort of critique it as well though don't we we don't just say yeah we, crit- we critique it give it the story behind it and then give it marks out of 10 so it's kind of like you know yeah. Um, yeah we've had some good guests as well um mm-hmm. We have. Lloyd, who's our new music editor, he's quite into like his pop and his R and B, which is an experience, wasn't it, Jim? It was you good. especially. <laughs> and then uh, <laughs> we also had Kath Holland, who's a really good writer from Liverpool, who's uh, really interested in Welsh music. Uh, yeah. She writes for all sorts of people, including ourselves. And uh, we've had yourself, uh, Angela. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it's going great guns. We've, we we hope tomorrow we're going to have Katie Malco on the pod. Oh, cool, cool. An up-and-coming artist who's got her album mm. out this year. And she requested to come on after we played her. So it's uh, yeah. it's kind of working out nicely. Yeah. So should we play, should we hear something new then? Yeah. Yeah, cool. So I'm going to play um, a song by a band called Foundlings, who assigned to Last Night from Glasgow. And they also just played the recent uh, Balcony Fest, which is an online festival created by Joy Zine and pulls together the likes of 
us, Crow Crow Land, and God is in the TV, and other zines and promoters to, to create something online during isolation. And Foundlings played with, they had a good green screen action going on, I thought, for their their set but you know the song I'm going to play isn't necessarily a new song of theirs but it is it is one of my favorites so this is misery So that was Foundlings with Misery and uh, they're, they're a band that I actually first heard about probably 18 months ago through, I, I think it may have been through Lines, it may have been through another band, but um, yeah, I've, I've really just followed them since since then and love love all the stuff that they do and I was actually really torn between playing a number of their, their songs. But this, this one just, I don't know, it's just got this really nice sort of summery vibe to it there's a bit of sort of hint of nostalgia there for me I suppose and I just really love the vocal line I think it's quite yeah just really grabs you and just takes you on that that ride really I just yeah I love them and I suppose if you want to if you want to check them out and I'll let the guys say something and Paula about about foundlings in a moment but while I've got the notes in front of me before I lose them if you want to check them out, um, it's Foundlings on Spotify, obviously. But on Instagram, it's at Foundlings. Facebook, it's Foundlings UK. And on Twitter, it's Foundlings underscore UK. So, uh, so yeah, um, I guess, Bill, what do, what do you think? Um, I only heard about half the track, but I, I enjoyed what I heard. And I quite like the sort of the tight rhythm and the there's a kind of a post-punky feel to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I was getting a bit of a Savages vibe. Yeah. Um, maybe mixed with a bit of sort of 90s college rock, American, Sleater Kinney, that kind of era. Yeah. yeah. I was getting quite a strong Debbie Harry Blondie kind of thing. Yeah. 
the vocals definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely the vocals. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Well, you you guys can come back because you explain things better than we do. I just half the time I just go, I, I like that. We <laughs> like that track. It's great. It's bad though because we make all these comparisons and then Andy yeah. edits our podcast. Goes, you're making too many comparisons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, I definitely I get where you come. It's hard with new music, isn't it? You do need to uh, make mm-hmm. some. But yeah. I'm aware that a pigeonhole in people as well. So that's all right. We it's guess. more elements of the music sound like these things, not that they're. Do you know what I mean? Rip off. Yeah. Yeah, rip off. Sorry. Well, no, exactly. But it's what it's. But the thing is, like the comparisons you made make total sense to me. Mm-hmm. It's like I like all the bands that you mentioned, and actually now that you said it, it's like yeah, actually I can hear that, and it sort of explains why I've probably gravitated to that song. So yeah. yeah. So Paula, what did you think? I like it. I like it a lot. I'm not too familiar with the band to be honest but I thought that's a great track I'd definitely be interested in hearing a bit more from them um I really I totally agree with the sort of Debbie Harry comments but I also think like one of the hardest questions you ever get asked being in a band is who do you sound like what are your influences and trying to judge that yourself is such a hard shot yeah um yeah there's there's a band that I know that often people do say oh there's something b52s about them and the band themselves actually hate the B fifty two. So they're like, we're never gonna have that put in. That's not any, bug eye, is it? That's not bug eye. No, it's not bug eye. I, I, I don't care. hate the B fifty twos. Rock Lobster's a tune. <laughs> oh, they could buy B fifty twos. Well, we're we're gonna talk about various things on the show. I'm gonna talk about little Richard, who sadly died um a couple of days ago. Um when this podcast comes out, it'll be well, just a week ago I suppose um, mm. and I'm going to try and cover him in a slightly different way than everyone else is doing at the moment I suppose and uh, Paula what are you going to talk about? I'm talking about the 27 club which refers to people that died at the age of 27 but I'm trying to do that's happy. Slightly, <laughs> yeah let's go for a bit of a happier vibe I'm going to do a slightly different twist and talk about um, tracks that I really like by these musicians. Cool and I believe that Jim and Bill have brought some stuff along. We have. You go first, Jim. My, well, I, I, mine was uh, just, I've, I was sort of been uh, reading up a little bit on um, sort of stuff on Britpop because there's been a few sort of more nostalgia bits and uh, bits about the 90s. So I've gone down the uh, down the avenue of was Noel Gallagher going to see Tony Blair at number 10, the death of Britpop? <laughs> nice. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I think it was after them, but, you know, whatever. Yeah. Well, I think it was Nebworth. We can get into this later on anyway. before. <laughs> <laughs> and what about you, Bill? Um, I've tried to narrow it down to um, the five acts most influenced by Kraftwerk. And obviously, given the death of uh, Florian Schneider yeah. last week, mm. um, who, and obviously Kraftwerk were a massive influence on pop music, dance yeah. music, synth music. It's quite impossible, actually, to narrow it down to five, but I had a crack, but, you know, there's actually... It's, it's, it's endless. The influence of Kraftwerk yeah. is endless. So. You could probably do 50, to be fair. Yeah, no, I was no. thinking about actually expanding it maybe to 10 for the website. So should we start with the most depressing subject? Of, well, I was um, going to say, we, we've got a running theme of death, haven't death. we? All yeah. four of us. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm terrible now. I should have done something <laughs> sunshine <laughs> yellow. <laughs> Right, do, you, do you want to start with the 27 Club? Let's get it out of the way. <laughs> okay, but it's not, it's not all morose. I'm talking about music that I love. Um, 
So the 27 Club, as I've suggested, refers to people that died at the age of 27. Um, it kind of seems to have started when Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison all died within a two-year period of each other. I think it was like the late 60s, early 70s, that kind of time. And obviously, I mean, around that time, they, there was a lot of questions raised about the sort of lifestyle they might have been living. They were all quite sort of counterculture characters, I guess. Um and then when Kurt Cobain died many years later, uh, there was a quote from his mum that said she'd warned him not to join that club. And that's when the kind of term the 27 Club really started getting referred to in, in popular culture quite frequently. I didn't know so, that. No, though to be fair, um, there's kind of two sides to that story as to whether that club was like what we know now as the 27 Club or as a club of um, people who have died of suicide because unfortunately some of his members of his family, sorry, had also committed suicide. Um, there's not just musicians that are what, included in this. No, no, no. In, just oh, in general, oh, in their right. life. Oh, like sorry, sorry. I totally misunderstood. Was there like a Kurt Cobain, like as in the fact, sorry, I'll shut up, carry on. No, no, no. If I'm not being clear, please let me know. Um, there's not just musicians that are included within it. There's painters like Basquiat, River Phoenix is in there, Jay Goody even. But there does seem to be quite a sort of heavy weight towards musicians. And whether that's, the media's perception and to be honest I didn't even check but maybe I don't even know if 27 is like a normal age for people for musicians to die I didn't check how many people die at 26 or 28 but that's probably a little bit too kind of I don't know Dave Gorman for me that's not really my thing uh so I've, I've chosen three musicians from this that I'd like to sort of focus on um they're musicians that I really like and really respect we've got Kurt Cobain Amy Winehouse and Richie Edwards from the Manic Street Preachers so what should we start with should we should we go with Richie? Yeah. Richie? Okay, so Richie Edwards, which I didn't know before I started researching this, was initially a driver and a roadie for the Manic Street Preachers. Who, I, I didn't know that. I didn't mm. know that either. Who ended up joining the band? <laughs> Whose music See, look, beats the most here? Like, I know this. Like, any, anything I'm, we I'm, talk a, about I'm today. a Manix fan. I've been a Manix fan for about uh, how many years? Uh, uh, 25, uh, 25 years? Mm. I'm in trouble now, aren't I? Because you're going to actually be corrected me on every point on this. No, no, I'm not like excited. I have read everything by Simon Price, but hang on, hang on, hang on. Right, but he's he's not dead though, is he? He's not. He's not actually listed as being dead. He's just missing, wasn't his car? He is. He is. is. Oh, I thought his car was found after a certain amount of years. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Okay. I mean, he disappeared in on the first of February '95. and wasn't pronounced officially dead until I think it's 2008, 2009. It was like quite a while after. I think his family had the opportunity to do it before then, but for whatever reason decided not to. I mean, like even after his disappearance, he continued to be credited on um, albums for songs that he'd worked on. And there was a there was an album that I think was all of his all of his songs. Journal for the Plague Lovers. Yeah. And was that was that solely his lyrics on there? Oh no, hang on, hang on. Are you talking about lyrics that he left? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Journal for the Plague Lovers. Nick yeah, it was in a, found them in his loft, didn't they? Or in yeah, it was a it was a folder that they were given. Uh, the band yeah. were given from uh, Nicky Wire's home called the Bugs Bunny folder, where he'd written all these like <laughs> mad poems and stuff. Yeah, so they cut them down to to write an album, basically. That's really yeah. interesting. I didn't know they cut them together to write it. I thought I always yeah. assumed that it was just like finished pieces in no they were like poems yeah that's quite interesting because the song that i'm going to talk about is motorcycle emptiness which is from yeah. generation terrorists 
And um, I mean, Nicky Wire describes it as a six minute song about alienation despair. And for me, it is, I can understand why like it, the lyrics are quite bleak, but I find it quite like an uplifting song. I don't know if that's because of the well, guitars within it. Yeah, the riff, it's epic, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, the riff for me absolutely makes it. But <laughs> yeah and I absolutely think that that song is something that was just written to be played in stadiums like it's just oh, yeah. such a big sort of anthemic is that the right word yeah, yeah. they were big Guns N' Roses fans so I didn't know that either came from yeah. but um the oh where was I where was I going with that oh yeah the cut and paste kind of lyric thing so this yeah. the um oh I've lost my words the chorus of that song was actually taken from a previous song that they'd written called Go Buzz Baby Go yeah Mm-hmm. and uh, behave yourself badly. And that's where the motorcycle incident came from. When the second half of it, sorry, rather, that's the second half of it. The first line of it was taken from a poem that was written by Nicky Wire's brother, I think it was. Patrick. What was his name, Patrick? Got a pair of, got a pair of Mannix fans here. <laughs> <laughs> Loving it. No, but this is so the research for me. Patrick so Jones, yeah, he's yeah. a poet, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're basically was... like a human Wikipedia for this. <laughs> we should we should basically oh, yeah. always have them on like a hotline. <laughs> whatever we're talking about. The, ma- the Mannix the Manix line. <laughs> yeah. Um, the oh God, line. If the Manix Street preachers ever come up again, you know where I'm coming for this info. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that was something that I was never aware of. It was kind of like a chorus being stuck together by something they'd written previously, and also something that someone else had written as well, which I thought mm. was quite an interesting way to pull a chorus together. But mm. for me, I think like. The things that I genuinely love about this song is like the kind of the hooky guitar, the way it kind of chugs along throughout the verses into the chorus and then the chorus itself, which I think is like an amazing chorus. I don't know if I now like it less because I know they didn't write some of it or didn't write it themselves. I guess they set it to music. So however you want to interpret that as them I writing it. I always thought it was written as like a competitive thing because I read Maybe. certain things where it was like Nick, Nicky would write a line and then Richie would mm-hmm. write a line. Mm. I don't know if it's that. I don't know if it's that, but I always assumed it was that. But I don't know, you know, specific I mean, detail in the song. So you, you obviously. For me, I, I think I think I like it more through knowing that now, in the sense that it's it's really clever. Uh, and the that's fact quite that Bowie, it isn't sound, it? Cut and yeah. paste, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like spread the lyrics out on the floor and pick a little bit. But the fact that it seamlessly fits together and sounds like one piece of like that came from one mind or or, or something like that. I think that's great. That's a, that's. I always find it funny as well because it's got it's got a swear word on it. It's never Is bleeped it? out. Yeah, because the way James sings it, mm-hmm. political, sh- you know, shine you a can, light. You can swear on this podcast. <laughs> oh, <laughs> political shite. You know, that's oh, what he sings. Oh, yeah. But the way he sings it, you you don't notice because I no. I've been on hospital. I I go on hospital radio sometimes mm-hmm. doing doing a show on there. I used to anyway. And uh, I used to play it often. <laughs> it never get, it never get, you know. So who's next on your list? So next on my list, I have someone that we've mentioned already with Nirvana. And um, so, I mean, like Kurt Cobain's death spell publicised. I don't particularly need to go through the details of it. I'm sure we're all aware of it. Um, but the song I'd like to talk about is About a Girl, which is the third track on their debut album. I don't think it was ever released as a single um, until they did the Unplugged album. Correct me if I'm wrong. They, they might. I'm fairly certain they didn't. As I quickly Google, are you? <laughs> yeah, I don't think it was either. I don't think it was. I think it's definitely one of the more one of their more famous tracks, particularly from Bleach. To be fair, but um, I don't think it was ever. Really yeah, and it's quite different, isn't it, to everything else on Bleach, which is quite Massively. quite punky Massively. or out that post hardcore uh, scene. 
Yeah, I mean, like Kurt himself described it as a risk, like and saying that he was heavily into pop, REM and all kinds of 60s stuff. But that within the kind of the scene, if that's what you want to call it at the time, there was like a lot of pressure to sort of, you know, confirm that kind of sort of grungy, punky kind of mud honey sort of sound. And he considered it like a massive risk to kind of even put it on the album. I think it was the producer whose name now escapes me that kind of convinced him to put it on there. And even he was saying at the time, like they were kind of thinking, what the hell is Sub Pop going to think about this? But decided to go with it anyway. It's sort of his most Beatles kind of thing, because he did have an obsession with the Beatles, didn't he? Yeah. And it's kind of as close as almost two, like one of the classic early 60s Beatles mm-hmm. songs. Yeah, I mean, and apparently it was written after he'd spent an afternoon listening to Meet the Beatles. So, yeah, Butch Vig, like, who ended up producing Nevermind, said that everyone talked about how much, like, Kurt was kind of in love with, like, Sonic Youth, the Meat Puppets and the whole punk scene, but that he was, like, a massive kind of Beatles fan. And the more time that he spent with him, the more that their influence on his songwriting became apparent. I mean, that's been, like, About a Girl has been described as something that is quite sort of Lennon McCartney-esque in the way that it's written. And I can definitely see where the comparisons come from. I mean, like, lyrically, it was sort it was written about his girlfriend at the time, who was the I think she was the one who took the photo of the cover Tr- of Trace Tracy what's what was her name? I can't I can't remember her surname, which is really bad, but her her name was Tracy something. What but theories around Kurt Cobain are so mad many. as well. Yeah. Like that, you know, he what, about his death? Yeah, I mean, like people oh, thinking that you know he, nonsense. he was killed by Courtney Love. I mean, uh, uh, so all rubbish. She had to go to court to prevent um, photographs of his dead body being released to the yeah. press. Like, and for me, that's just insane. It's like, at what point do you draw the line? Like, he has a daughter. Yeah. Thing is, though, there's always there was one that bothered me about the Kurt Cobain thing was that there were like doctors saying that the amount of heroin that was in his body mm-hmm. he would never know to have lifted a, the gun and pointed mm-hmm. at his head mm-hmm. or the angle he shot himself at was almost impossible to have shot yeah. himself at. You don't know. I mean, obviously, it's... I don't know exactly what went on. But, but the thing is, in America, which which is, um, I don't know, I'm like a massive true crime fan and the problem in the States is that there are a lot of people that can be you know, specialists, quote unquote, and, and, and literally you can you can find any um, professional to say a certain thing and, and talk about it in a certain way. And and that's 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 the thing that I'm sorry for, because we've got a lot of um, people in America that listen to our show. So um, I, I don't mean to offend you with, with this, but um, <laughs> but it is a little bit messed up with how um, how evidence and. And and how how these things and it's conjecture at the end of the day, isn't it? You could Mm. say, oh well, you know, so much error, and he couldn't lift the gun or whatever. But you could think that maybe he shot up, and then he shot himself. You know, you just don't know what happened. Yeah. And I think I think you know, a lot of people just want to believe that you know, no way could he have done that. There must be another reason. But it's the sad truth is, I'm sorry, but he did do that, and uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And actually, I think I prefer the um, the acoustic version of About a Girl to the album version. Yeah, I agree with you. Apologies got, for me as well. Yeah, I think it's just got a really nice kind of, without wanting to sound cliche, but like a rawness to it. Well, the unplugged thing was like a different, it was almost mm. like a, I mean, that's my era. So, you know, it, it was, it, I used to fast forward and rewind that and watch it all the time. Yeah. The unplugged thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Brilliant. It's great. So on to Amy Winehouse. Um, like Kurt Cobain, we all know that she died in 2011 in her house in Camden. And the song that I've chosen to talk about this is 
Tears Dry On Their Own, which is one of my favourite songs, probably from one of my favourite albums, which I don't know if it's everyone's cup of tea, but Back to Black would probably be in my top 10 albums for all time, without a shadow of a doubt. And this track's a really nice kind of sort of soulful track with a, for me, it's got a big sort of nod towards sort of 60s girl groups in it. Um, musically, it samples an in, interpolation, I think that's how you pronounce it, of Marvin Gaye and Tammy, Tammy Terrell's Ain't No Mountain High Enough, which isn't the same as a straight sample. It just means that it's kind of, they've taken an idea or a phrase from a song and replayed it in their own way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very much like Mark Ronson. And, um, well, no, you produced that, the album. He did produce the album. He produced. Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah, it was him and someone else. I think it was co-produced with someone else as well, or maybe they split the tracks. There were definitely two producers on that album, but he was one of them for sure. And um, yeah, so like much of Back to Black, it concern, it, a lot of the lyrics concern her sort of on-off relationship with Blake. Is it Fielder Civil, Civil Fielder, something like that? Who went on to become her husband? And like this song in particular, she said, like this is about when you're in a relationship and you know you're going to have to leave. You know you're going to be upset, but you know you have to do it. But I feel like what I get from this song, and particularly the way that it kind of goes, progresses as the song goes on, is it is quite uplifting. And the last chorus, the way it ends, and it, she just ends on like a big sha-la-la kind of thing at the end. It's great. I really, really love this track. I think it's one of the more positive ones on the album. And, yeah, the way it ends for me is like a big sort of a we've come to the end of something horrible and now it's going to be okay kind of a feeling. I mean, I, I think it's one of those albums that when I heard it, it was how how can you do better than this album? It's almost yeah. like the perfect album that was a classic before it's going to be a classic. But how and can you be that age and have that voice as well? Yeah. Like, for me, I was, oh, I was so surprised when you think of someone that young with that kind of, and she looks, she wears, she does borrow a lot from the kind of sixties and soul and things like that. Don't get me wrong, but I think she's quite honest about it and wears it on her sleeve. It's not like she's trying to pretend that, you know, she's kind of come up with this great new sort of genre. Well, no, but it still had like a modern edge to it. I mean, the, the, mm. the, I mean, who sings about chips and pitta in the sixties? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the lyrics in there are, are totally relevant to, to relatable. Know, yeah, exactly. That's that's the word. Relevant, relatable, whatever. Um but yeah, no, I mean there's there's a reason why that album was was so successful and you know, I'm I'm no sort of music critic, but it just it took kind of music that the likes of you and I might have grown up to because our parents were listening to it mm-hmm. and you know um, and, and to another generation who hadn't heard those those types of vibes before, you know, something fresh to them and, and bringing those lyrics that, that, you know, did relate to them in, into that. And it was very real and honest, as you say, and her life was very, very public, you know, yeah. um, the fight's not, it was, you know, it was never going to end well. Uh, I think that's a fair it's, point you've just made, not one that I've ever considered. Like, I always think of listening to Amy Winehouse, like, as much as I can see the influences there, I've never really considered that maybe part of the reason why I really love her is that it is a bit nostalgic for me. And it does kind of take me back to being a child and listening to my dad's music or my dad playing music and us being there rather. Yeah. Apparently, um, I heard a, um, a documentary with um, Mark Ronson mm. talking about Back to Black on uh, the BBC a few years ago. And um, he was saying that she came in 
and she just said, I want, to, I want it to sound like, um, this is Back to Black, the song. Mm-hmm. I want it to sound like the Shangri-Las. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So that's what he kind of went for with the production. But yeah, it's definitely, it, it taps into Oh, it's, it's so like, um, what's that one? Walking after you. It's a Shangri-Las song. And yeah. I've just sung the lyrics really wrong, but it, that is the kind of, <laughs> but yeah, you can, you can totally get the, yeah. Dun, 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 yeah. There's a lot of Motown in there as well. Yeah, there? for Back sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But she was more of a jazzy, the, the other stuff is more jazzy, isn't it? So, but she was always very, always very honest. The, the lyrics were kind of brutally honest, really. And yeah. I always liked how honest and brutal she was. And yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's very sad, actually. Very sad. Have you seen the film Amy? I'm, I'm talking about films all the time. I, I haven't watched it. Tragic, no. really. Yeah. Mm. I suppose it was one of those things that actually I I really loved Amy Winehouse as well, and I haven't been able to bring myself to to watch that. Which it's I don't know. Like with all of all of these things, it's like only recently have I started reading like autobiographies and and biographies of of stars because a lot a lot of the time. Um, in these things there's so much tragedy that it it kind of taints things a bit and just makes me feel sad about them and mm-hmm. and uh yeah so when know. you know how the story ends it's always yeah ex- exactly and, and and that's that's the thing right it's like something like amy is never going to be this uplifting thing it's it's you know I always I know felt like she couldn't handle she couldn't yeah. handle the fame it was sort of was too much for her and there was that period as well. I was thinking about it the other day about uh, Pete Doherty because I've got a friend who's in a band and he said, oh, he's, he's mates with Pete Doherty. And I was thinking to myself, well, 15 years ago, Pete Doherty and Amy Winehouse were like the biggest stars in the country. They were on the yeah. front page yeah. of the Sun and the, the Star every day. Mm-hmm. But it was almost like they were being, you know, trailed. Well, like, which was, one's going to die first? Almost. Exactly. I was, was going to really, say that. It's, it's... It was really voyeuristic. I mean, there's the Indelicate song called They're Waiting for Pete Doherty to Die, which is basically all about that. <laughs> anyway, should we, should, we, should we listen to some new music? So, so, so um, um, Jim or Bill, did you bring something along to play? I believe Jim's going first. Yeah. The track um, they both liked, isn't it, Jim? From the yes, podcast. I think it probably, uh, what has probably been the highest score that we've done combined. Between the two of us. Yeah. Between the uh, two of us. Or was it when it was with Andy? I can't remember whether it was Maybe, that one yeah. or not. But yeah, uh, this is Fen Lily and Hypochondriac. These conversations I have with myself Only as hard as a
that was uh, Fen Lily and Hypochondria. Um, yeah, she's got like a really sort of gentle, almost breathy vocal to it. But whereas some people can be a little bit sort of dull and a little bit sort of, in, sort of blurring into the background, there's something quite engaging about her. And yeah, there's uh, it sort of swells and builds towards the end. So like a Fleetwood Mac type sort of uh, late 70s Stephen Nicks type thing. But nice. it's really just sort of really quite calming as well, but sort of interesting with it. Yeah, that was one of our highest rating uh, on the pod. And show me magic wasn't it, Bill? It's quite apt as well at the moment, obviously, because everyone's worried about becoming ill with coronavirus specifically. But um, there's kind of an inner dialogue, you know, sort of quell anxiety. And um, yeah, it's just really comforting and sort of a voice. But it also, it's got a bit of like hope at the end of a tunnel or something where she sings, um, These are trying times, but I'll get by. And it's kind yeah. of, yeah, yeah, it's kind of bittersweet mm-hmm. and it swells yeah. to that nice into that nice outro which is cool well actually i was i was thinking when i just actually heard it properly when i rather than listening to it through speakers through speakers and then yeah um actually listening to it properly um i just ah the vocals the vocals it reminds me of like a kind of chilled guitar-y version of um have you heard of the the band still corners yeah yeah like I love the sort of gentleness of the vocals and the way the music and th- those two things work together. It's quite it deceptive, me, yeah. It's quite deceptive. Yeah, and just reminded me of that, but not reminded me of that as in it's the set because if you listen to the two, they're they're, they're not like at all. I just like to say, but um, yeah, I I really liked it and I liked the kind of paciness of it and uh, yeah. Yeah, it sort of skips along, doesn't it? Like you could ride yeah. ride down the down the motorway might listen to it kind of thing it's got a really yeah. nice vibe to it yeah she's got an album coming i believe as well she's from bristol so mm-hmm. i think it's on dead oceans which is the yeah. label that phoebe bridges is also on so there's a bit of okay. a, a crossover yeah. there yeah so we talked about the 27 club which um i, th- I think there's there's death with with all artists and bands that we talk about in this podcast um but I, I thought that, that maybe rather than me going next with Little Richard, we could do, like, I don't know, the story that Bill's brought along or or Jim or... Do you want to go first, Jim? Because yours is a bit more uh, lighthearted, I think. Maybe, yeah. Um, so, yeah, mine uh, was, I was, like I said before, I was just sort of um, centering around for the past couple of months, sort of going back and being a bit more nostalgic and listening to a lot of old albums and stuff that, you sort of don't necessarily listen to on a regular basis. One of the things, and one of the things that seems to be quite prevalent at the moment is the Britpop bashes and uh, sort of some of the Too Cool for School uh, sites and magazines are deciding that everything from Modern Life is Rubbish to Definitely Maybe is now crap and was just sort of perpetuating some kind of ladism and almost racism with the Union Jack and into that. Completely disagree on that one, but anyway. Well, yeah, it was totally not about that at all. That's that's from some like little like 18-year-old who has no idea of what was going on socially or in anything at all. It could not be further from the truth. Basically, by well, exactly, it's by people who don't who weren't there at the time, mm-hmm. who didn't really know what was going on. Oh, who... they were there at the time, but they were older and they just didn't like it. <laughs> no. Yeah, tend to be I like was... melody maker journalists, I shouldn't really say. There are those, <laughs> and, but then there are those sort of all the other ones that are absolutely in there. I do like the melody now, maker, actually. But, you know. who, uh, oh, yeah. But I think, you know... I follow are... a lot of them as well. 
people have decided now that there's a it's not cool anymore no it's not cool there's a big issue you know there's a problem with it that there is this ladders and thing there's a dad rock thing to it and it's just not very interesting um and it's not really sort of in at the moment the guitars are out but not as far as we're concerned obviously but so but my sort of the general subject around it was uh was Gamal Gallagher going to see Tony Blair at number 10 the death of Britpop because uh, nostalgia is a wonderful thing it comes all nicely packaged with a ribbon like a big present and when you open it you look look at it through a big pair of rose-tinted spectacles especially if you're me who was a teenager in the 90s 13 in 1994 16 in 97 and left school in the junior that year with the excitement of be here now buzzing around Tony Blair and new labeler just started just stormed to power and there was an incredible optimism with Britpop's candle still just about burning the Union Jack wasn't crammed with racist and nationalistic overtures, and we were proud of the country. Admittedly, that didn't last long into the new millennium and 9-11, but with that brief window, we were all happy, weren't we? The music was better. There is obviously great music about now, but it's very much the underground, and the new music world of streaming and Spotify, etc., has ensured that only what the big majors want will be top of the tree. It's not really democratic anymore. You went and bought your favourite band singles. It was affordable. The best ones did various formats, and the best got top 20 singles being underground isn't better who wouldn't want to be a top on top of the pops is it good Ed Sheeran and Drake are getting the whole of the top 40 <laughs> singles as their album or Taylor Swift no there was no fun in the top 40 chart on Thursday night Sunday was exciting when and what do we have now strictly finals Britain's got talent oh the irony when the best talent is being ignored because it's not on the Spotify or Radio 1 playlist the Britpop had been a roller coaster that mainly existed at the peaks, but it hit the skids in 97. What began with Brett, Select Magazine, Jarvis, Damon, Liam, Noel, Definitely Maybe, and everything wonderful in between came crashing down to earth. And in July 97, Tony Blair invited Noel to number 10. Was this another cog in the hype and press machine as it reached fever pitch for the most hotly anticipated album of all time? Noel is grinning at the Prime Minister of Great Britain. It only took two years for Noel to dismiss the man who had been ex- he'd have been extolling at the, on stage at the Brit Awards in '96. The damage was done, and the ticker tape lay wet and soggy in the morning after the night before. Be here now seemed all wrong, overblown, overhyped, and all about the aesthetic, much like New Labour. By '99, when Noel abandoned the hope he'd had in Blair, the wheels were coming off Oasis, and the party was well and truly over. Standing on the shoulder of giants, nearly destroyed the band. Two members left whilst it was recorded and it nearly didn't appear at all. But when it did, it was half-baked. It hammered the death nail in the, into all the other bands that hadn't quite enjoyed the champagne at the pinnacle. So, do we agree? When did Britpop <laughs> die? For me, I think, you know, it felt like I remember when Labour got in and, you know, we were into the whole sort of indie music vibe of things... And it sort of felt like suddenly we had a voice and people had a voice and Britain wasn't an awful place. And, you know, so, so the whole, the whole, it was almost like a reclaiming of the Union Jack. Just it like 18 racist... years of the Conservative government. Well, exactly. This, this was like a massive turning point. The world was changing in a really positive, but I suppose I was quite naive at that time as to what that meant. Um, and, you know, Tony Blair being able to, to strum a Fender guitar with, like, fucking Oasis being there should have actually been a really cringe 
what the fuck is going on moment. And I think we're all a bit smarter to this mm. PR shit now. But um, so, I mean, the death of Britpop, was it the Tony Blair thing or was it just a mixture of, of a number of things? I mean, it, to me, it, it kind of seems that there can only ever be one genre of music that's big at any one time in the in the UK. Is it to do with population? Probably not. Um, because that doesn't seem to be the case in 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 other countries. I mean, obviously, arguably, you could say in the states it's huge. It's like countries within countries, but um, you, you kind of see a more vibrant mix of genres existing in the likes of Germany and France. But um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's quite cringy, isn't it, when when someone's um, hanging out with politicians? But it's not the first time it's happened. It's happened. Uh, the Beatles hung out with politicians. And, and gangsters and all sorts of people. So, yeah, but I suppose in, in this sense it was really in the, the public eye. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think we were all starting to, um, to wake up a little bit as to what was really going on um, politically and economically and socially and uh, feeling a little bit let down. If you down. think about what we've had in the 2000s, which is much more disparate, if you look at the 90s as a, as a, as a thing, it's much easier to, to cling on to the characters and the sounds. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, Looking as a, a millennial, you, if you look back at the 90s, it's much more of a, you know, a, a brightly coloured thing to, you know, to dip into, isn't it? That's what I'm trying to say. Whereas the 2000s was much more disparate and... Um, fragmented yeah, in terms of actually. all the different genres yeah and they make, what i'm trying to say is you had characters then who you know who stood out you know uh, for better or worse not not even just in the sort of indie world but in but the, then, the pop world as well you know but then i sort of feel like that was that was also like a bit of a media circus like the yeah, whole yeah. oasis versus blur who's mm-hmm. gonna have the next hit single like brip top was an entire media creation you know it was a i mean the actual scene was happening already and then it just got its name from Stuart McCoy. Oh, yeah. And 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 he was he made it into a sort of jing, vaguely jingoistic thing, but it was more yeah. like in a in a playful way because we'd had like a lot of Nirvana and we'd had a lot of American music of the last, you know, in the early 90s. It was almost like, oh, now we've got our own music. And it was kind of that pride that we had, you know, Pulp and Suede and, you know, these bands and Blur. Yeah. And so it was kind of that pride. It wasn't so much uh, like, you know, oh, go away, you nasty, you know. I mean, there was the Yanks go home thing, which Brett didn't really like, and he was transposed onto there. But that's the thing. What I'm trying to say is that there was a something already happening, and then they put the name on top of it, and then it became a bandwagon, and then yeah. it became that's... something different. But that's like most mm. of these sort of uh, genres or, you know, that yeah. the get named by, by magazines and the media. They do become... And if, especially if they go, over, you know, overboard, like you were saying about the top shop stuff, like it's that same thing happened with grunge where it sort of went over, over into to mainstream. And then you had all the sort of, you know, the, the, the watered down versions and all the labels were looking for the next Nirvana and et cetera, et cetera. And the same thing happened with Britpop. All the labels were looking for the next Oasis and you had a lot of bad bands. But I think that's what, that was what killed Britpop more than anything else was that it just became so diluted and I mean I don't think it was I think that's what happens with a lot of like different 
genres, whether that's grunge or like before Britpop, there was the new wave of new wave. But, but what I'm trying to say, I think there was already a movement in guitar music in the country already with things like Suede and Auteurs and uh, yeah. Elastica. Mm-hmm. Elastica. There was already something there and then it got that name and then it became something different. And like then you had a version Yeah, almost. you had Oasis, obviously, and then and then yeah. and then at the point at the end of Britpop, I think all of those bands were so big that they couldn't fail anymore. They became pop bands. Like yeah. Oasis mm-hmm. became a pop band, and even though Be Here Now, it sold ridiculous amounts because it was off the back of you know what's the story. So, I think but, that um, was the thing, wasn't it? Though, because they, so they became stadium bands, yeah, they became stadium acts. Yeah. All we need to do, Bill. And Jim, we need to coin a new, a new way of describing music right now and yeah. create a new movement. <laughs> because that's the thing, that saying floor. indie, it's like, oh, well, I yeah, remember. Yeah, because it's not indie, indie really. used to appear on everything indie. and it's disappeared now. It's like, oh, it's yeah, it not has. even a movement. I suppose what um, I'm trying to say is independent music. Yeah. Because you yeah, had all those characters like Marky e. Smith, people like that, you know, who, who just total characters who, you know, who wouldn't have exi- who wouldn't exist now in terms of in the mainstream not the mainstream but they wouldn't have that kind of like level no, of but in other countries in other countries they literally don't need to have these kind yeah, of yeah, like yeah. weird little movements that pick up, pick up it's like no, you're, know, you're a guitar band you're well, a rock I was band trying to, you know I was trying to um, diffuse that yeah. before mm-hmm. with the Britpop thing I do think Britpop as a term was a cliche pigeonhole that they put on top of something that was already existing and as you said it was already it was quite wide as well it wasn't just you know it wasn't just about guys in a guitar band that's what i'm trying to say Should we go on to the next segment which is i'm going to do the story of little richards and i'm going to do it in a bit of a fun way and it means i can do it quite quickly as well because otherwise this will be the longest podcast episode ever um, normally what I do is do like this sort of background and pick out some key moments and I am going to do it this way but um, but I'm actually going to do it as a quiz because I think there's enough articles out there at the moment covering Little Richard and doing it in a much better way than, than I ever could so uh, yeah so should we, should we get started with this? I don't know if you know he was born Richard Wayne Penniman did you know yeah. that? Lee? Mm-hmm he was born on the 5th of December, 1932. Yeah. Just check Wikipedia. <laughs> did, did you know? Did you know? What, <laughs> right, right. Okay. Well, I thought you fuckers might know that. So I'm going to pull you up on your 1932 knowledge right now. So how much was a loaf of bread in 1932? Do you know? Uh, Is shillings then still? 3D. Yeah. Well, it's American, Two-D. American, American. Oh. So here oh, so in cents uh, or dollars or whatever. Five cents. Five cents. So hang on a sec. Bill's saying five cents. Twenty cents. You're saying twenty cents, Jim. Paula, what are you saying? I'm going two cents. It was seven cents. You're all wrong. Oh, it's near enough. And what was the average wage per year back then? Two hundred dollars. Remember, remember, this was the Great Depression. Oh yeah. Per year. Mm. Uh, $75. $200. $75. Oh, um, you're all so far uh, out. Wait, 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 I haven't guessed. Oh, I haven't okay. guessed. Sorry, sorry. Let the ginger one speak. You're all so far out. So we're going to go low or high here. Let's go with $800. Nope, you're all wrong. 
it, the average wage was around, um, and it's, it's probably listed for white people, I imagine, looking at this number, but it was around the £1,600 mark, dollars even. That seems quite a lot. Okay, last one. Oops, sorry, I keep moving away from my mic. Um, how much do you think a gallon of gas was in 1932? Two and a half dollars. Two dollars fifty. Paula? 76 cents. 10 cents. But that, that was a lot. 1932, remember? Well... I think that sets the tone for how I'm going to tell this this story. Um, <laughs> hopefully, I don't I, I do it justice. Uh, anyway, Little Richard was born Richard Wayne Penniman on the fifth of December in 1932, Marcon, Georgia. He was the third of twelve children. His Jesus. father was a church deacon who sold bootlegged moonshine on the side and owned a nightclub called the Tip Inn. Inn. Wait, he's a church deacon. Yep. Who sold moonshine and owned a nightclub. Well, I think the common theme of this story is oh. uh, double standards. That's <laughs> <laughs> too much. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know, alcohol and a priest, I don't think that's particularly... <laughs> well, it, it, well, it's, it's, it, well, it's that, well, especially then it was like houses of the devil, you know, it was like, you know, pick and choose your battles. Or He'll you claim he was making yeah. communion wine or something. Exactly. Um, anyway, I'm just going to do um, a bit of his his backstory. That's Little Richard, because I do think it's interesting before we launch into a quiz. So needless to say, his father being a church deacon, religion was a huge part of Little Richard's upbringing. And there was actually some complications when Richard was born. Um, and as a result of those complications, one of his legs was shorter than the other, which deeply embarrassed his father. And he used to get picked on about that. Apparently it gave him an effeminate walk. Um, anyway, though he grew up singing in the church, his father never really approved of his musical talent and reportedly strongly disagreed with his son's early displays of sexuality. So kicked him out at age 13. Their relationship was always strained, but was short lived. His dad was shot and killed outside mm -hmm. his club um, when Richard was only 19. And apparently it was um, one of Richard's friends that, that shot him. Whoa. So, Little Richard's initial musical influences were gospel. Performers such as Brother Joe May, Sister Rosetta Thorpe. This is interesting as people say that he was the person who created rock and roll. But there are earlier artists such as Sister Rosetta who really did kick that off. And look. I'm not taking yeah. away from little Richard's influence, of course. He took this style of playing, progressed it and made it his own um, and obviously influenced many, many, many artists, uh, a lot of them white, um, to go on and do, do rock and roll music in the way that we know it. Mm -hmm. um, one of his first breaks came in October 1947. Sister Rosetta Thorpe overheard 14-year-old Richard singing her songs before a performance at the Marcon City Auditorium. She invited him to open her show. After the show, she paid him, inspiring him to become a professional performer. That's really cool. That was a big thing because even she said for a number of years that for black people, the choice was working in a cotton field, working as a servant, even though times apparently had mm -hmm. changed it was just not true at all and so for him and seeing this child it. saying you know what you can earn money playing music and you're you're talented so don't give up on that and just yeah 
So age 14, you know, to do that. But anyway, I think it's time to move on to the, the quiz. As I said before, I'm not going to cover all of Little Richard's story. We don't have enough time. And also there are plenty of people out there doing a sterling job of that at the moment. So I thought I would do this as a pub quiz. So, um, I mean, for me, I know loads of Little Richard songs, as I'm sure you all do. But how much do we actually know about mm, him? It's true. So let's find out. On, I'm sure I saw a documentary about him, but I don't remember any of it, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't think you're going to remember some of the things uh, that I'm going to mention because I picked oh, some choice, choice things. <laughs> Randomness. Uh, so it. question number one, which will set the tone of the quiz. Um, Little Richard... Once did a poo in a box, gave it to a friend as a gift. Is that true or false? True. 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 You're quite right. That is that is true. Um, I don't know what's wrong with me today. I keep moving away from the mic. Um, yeah. So he gave it to a friend. They were unaware what was inside. Took it home. Had a bunch of friends over. Decided to open the gift to find a festering turd. How about that? (laughs) Nice. I want to make a joke here, but I'm not going to. What about, his new album or about little but Richard he... giving a little Richard and stuff. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> he also, he also I won't, did I won't make that mom. joke. No, he really did. He always also did it to his mum. He did he did a poo in a in a jam jar and put it in her larder. Grim. But I could imagine him having that kind of sense of humour, you know. Yeah. Moving on from poo to question number two. And yes, that did rhyme. In 1955, Little Richard released his first and most famous hit, Tutti Frutti. The words Tutti Frutti on Rooty were the words in the single, but what was originally in place of Rooty? Yeah, I think it is something rude, isn't it? Because Tutti Frutti is a cutie. That's my guess. My beauty. Do you have a final answer for me? I'm trying to think of a rhyme. <laughs> Beauty fruity. Uh, good kiss booty. My, kiss my booty. No, it was good booty. Oh. It was good booty. Mm. And the record label went, oh, no, we no. can't have that. <laughs> and, and changed it. So um, I now I yeah. have songs called Booty Call. It was the original Booty Call song. <laughs> anyway, um, Little Richard had a bit of a hard time with it, um, with, with a number of black artists, not with... Booty call songs, but I'm saying in a lot of people liked to imitate Little Richard, and as soon as he released a song, a whole heap of artists would jump on those songs and cover them, sometimes gaining more success than Richard's. Mm. In late 1955, Little Richard recorded Tutti Frutti, as we've just talked about, but the lyrics were obviously cleaned up a little bit uh, by a New Orleans songwriter, as already mentioned. When Little Richard's hit was banned by many white-owned radio stations, white performers like Pat Boone and Elvis Presley did cover versions that topped the charts. Yes, that's that's quite shit, really, isn't it? And Richard's did did simmer at this, but not in silence. Um, he demanded fairer treatment. And no, I don't have more details as to what he did. Question number three. Can you name five artists that have covered Little Richard's songs? And before you answer, you can't have Elvis or Pat Boone because I just mentioned them. So who who else would be on the list? The Beatles. Uh... Rolling Stones. Okay. Uh, just guessing here. I don't know. Well, the Beatles definitely did. They did Long Tall Sally. Yeah, Long Tall Sally. Um, 
I have heard other covers as well, and now I can't think. Um, Male or female? There's like 102 artists that have done this. So it's like, yeah. Are you can pick anyone, I'll go, yeah, Frank Sinatra, yeah. he covered everybody. <laughs> Elvis? No. no. One you gave us one, Elvis. Can't, you can't pick Elvis. Oh, you said Elvis already, sorry. Exactly. You can't, you can't uh, pick Elvis, and you can't pick Pat Boone. Chuck Berry? No. The Animals? Yes. Well, they did, didn't they? See, I'm just guessing now. I'm struggling to even think of people. Well, I don't suppose this all really matters that much because I've not been keeping an official tally. I completely forgot. So the quiz is pointless. Oh, well. You're all winners. Uh, So, from obviously the Beatles, yes. The Animals, yes. Deep Purple. The band, Bruce Springsteen. But the surprise one for me was The Doors. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. They're quite bluesy, aren't they? What did they do? Oh, I knew that question was going to come. No, <laughs> it, was, um, it was Lucille. Oh, um, yeah. I know that well, one, we're yeah. probably whizzing through the question. So question number four, and I just have to say it's halfway point. Um, Jimi Hendrix used to play guitar for Little Richard. True or false? It's true. 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 I've heard that before. Yeah, I've seen a video as well. Okay, bonus question. According to Jimi Hendrix, Little Richard used to issue £50 fines for not calling him king. Is that true or false? True. False. Uh, False. It's actually true. Well, it's true from what Jimi Hendrix says, but there could be two sides, of course. Question number six. No, question number five, because that last one was a bonus one. Little Richard was signed in 1955, and by the time it hit 1959, how many top 40 pop singles had he written? And remember, I'm saying pop. It's a clue. Four years. I'm going to go for 34. Uh, I don't think he's going to have that many. No. 20? 10. Not bad, Bill. It was actually nine. Now, remember... A lot of these charted with white people covering them. So when I said pop chart, I meant the the kind of white acceptable chart. Uh, and the sad thing was when he was signed to his label in 1955, he kind of got swindled and somehow managed to sell his publishing for um, $50. Don't worry, he took them to court later. Actually, he took them to court twice. Um but he also had 17 top 40 singles in the R&B chart during that time. So he was, uh, yeah, he did quite well. I suppose, how pissed off would you feel, though, that there's these songs that you've written that are absolutely smashing it in the charts, making these other people huge, huge stars, and you don't get a penny for it? Oh, man. Like, that's just, yeah. Anyway, as I said, he did take them to court. Next question. We're whizzing through these, not as quickly as I'd like. But um, anyway, in 1957, while on tour in Australia, Richards announced he was leaving music to do what? Religion. To be a kangaroo farmer. Nope, you're wrong, Paula. Jim, you're right. Um, It was to join the ministry and he went to study theology. Uh, And I suppose around this time it was him feeling the need to repent. He'd been fucking around. So, you know, men, women... Lots of drink, lots of drugs. And anyway, during during a show, he'd seen a bright red fireball in the sky and he'd taken this as a sign from God to repent from the devil's music and his wild partying with men and women. 
The fireball was in fact the launching of the first Earth satellite, Sputnik 1. He also returned from tour 10 days early, only to read later that his original plane, um, the flight that was supposed to take, had crashed into the Pacific Ocean. So, yeah, was it a sign from God or just chance? And did that last the rest of his life that he gave up with the partying? No. No, no. I mean, that was in 1957 when he left, but he was well and truly back on the music scene by 1962, I believe. Next question, going back to this royalty lark and publishing, who owned the publishing on his work? Who do you think he, um, who co-owned it with the record label? Michael Jackson. <laughs> he usually is. <laughs> who, who do you think, Bill? Um, hmm. Colonel Tom Parker. <laughs> well, you know. Well, basically, you know, he's Elvis's manager, wasn't he? So, you know. I reckon it was his dad. No, Paula was right. It was Michael Jackson who also co-owned songs by the Beatles. And when Little Richard took this all to court later in in life, I think it was for like he was going for 112 million or, or something like that. Uh, it did actually settle out of court, but apparently it was just the label that paid the settlement and Michael Jackson didn't pay anything at all. Well, I'm excited to say that we're at the last question. Uh, can you name some famous duets with Little Richard? Can you give us a clue? That'll be a no. Jerry Lee Lewis. Great Bulls yeah. of Fire. Yeah. Must have done that. Stevie Wonder. James no. Brown. I mean, to be honest, I don't have like a definitive list in front of me. I literally Googled, you, you know, <laughs> most famous duets. And so this is the list that I have. So there may, there may, there probably is more to the list. So it's an unfair question. He sang, you really got, got me now with Bon Jovi for the Young Guns soundtrack, The Power with Elton John. He also preaches a sermon in rap style on the B-side of the 1989 12-inch single with U2 and B.B. King called When Love Comes to Town. So that, that is the end of the quiz and I'm not sure who won that. I think maybe Bill and uh, so I'll, I'll listen back and tally the scores but I think, I think I'll pick something random from my desk for you to win. I've just found some green fluorescent lipstick, maybe that, that yeah. I'm sure you want that. So I suppose I just want to end off with saying a little bit more about um, Little Richard, just to sort of summarise um, what we've talked about today. He had a tough childhood. He was subjected to homophobic jokes because of how he walked and talked. His father beat him for wearing makeup and his mother's clothes and kicked him out at such an early age. He struggled with his sexuality and often sought to distance himself from the LGBT community. But his queerness is what made him an incredible performer. He was flamboyant, experimental, frustrated and liberated at moments. He'd describe himself as gay, bisexual, straight, a man of God and a king, confident but struggling with self-acceptance. He exuded sexual energy on stage that no one had seen before. The outfits, the outrageous lyrics and the style of singing. He was totally unique and you can see and hear his influence on rock and roll throughout a number of artists. 
He had 26 studio albums containing so many hits, he was finally inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986 and received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1990. These were just a couple of honours and awards he would receive in his lifetime, later than they should have been given, of course, for some of them. On the 9th of May 2020 this year, two days before we recorded this this, um, show that you're listening to now, Little Richard died at home from bone cancer. He was 87 years old. I feel like that was a bit of a, obviously, a, a sad ending, so I think we need something nice now. Should we have some new music? Why the devil not, Paula? Okay, so the track that I've chosen to play this week is by a band called um, Hurt Links. Uh, it's a track called Memory Cassette. It's probably my favourite track of theirs. I think it just flows along really, really nicely. I think it's got a great, some great guitars on there, and I really, really, really love the vocals. So this is Memory Cassettes by Hurtlings. <laughs>
Okay, so that was Hurtlings with Mary Cassette. Um, it's taken from their debut album, Future From Here, which is out on, I genuinely cannot pronounce the name of that record company, I'm afraid, but their debut album is Future From Here. Um, across socials, they're Hurtling Bands. You can find them on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And they also have a band camp where you can buy a said album from. So guys, let me know your thoughts. What did you think? Onomatopoeia Records. Ah. There you go. <laughs> is that the own label? Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. No, is it? I'm asking a question. I, don't I genuinely don't know, to be honest. I'd be I believe it up. we've interviewed them before. I, it's the first time I've ever heard them. <laughs> no, I didn't interview them. We've got, we've got over 100 writers, you know. Yeah. So, Bill, did hey, you I've got have a question a... for I've got oh, a question yeah. for you. Just a minute. Off the back of that. Uh, um, you know, you're doing a quiz before. What would you guess how long God is in the TV has been around for? No. I'd say um, maybe 2002, 2005. I'd say 2008. 2008. Okay. 2003. It started off as a Yahoo site, and I just used to put my reviews on it because I used to write for the uh, Cardiff uh, University newspaper. Mm-hmm. And then other people just sort of joined in and then it became a, a sort of webzine, you know. Something anyway, yeah, you want to get to my story? Or... <laughs> Go for it. Take it away. Is it a story or is it just, you know, a... Uh... It's a history of craft work and they're it's a spreading their view. tentacles around. Yeah. Okay, so um, last week, Florian Schle- Schneider, I can't say his name, Florian Schneider, oh, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. died at the age of 73. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. He was one of the founders, co-founders of Kraftwerk, uh, with uh, Ralph Hutter in 1970. Who, who Kraftwerk are the art, the the, the, the I can't find my words now. It's getting late. Uh, the, uh, the actors kind of changed the face of music, really, and pop music and dance music and electronic mm-hmm. music. So I thought it'd be fun to pick out maybe five acts that I thought were quite influenced by. Um, craft work you know and they're they're aesthetic and everything really mm. um it's quite hard to put it in order because i actually to be honest i had a different order to this originally but when i did some reading around about human league because originally i had human league quite high up mm. when i did some reading around there apparently they're more influenced by like georgia Maroder and things like that really i'm surprised at that although oh, yeah, there yeah. is a craft work obviously a big craft work thing mm-hmm. with human league i've left them off this so that's i'm just explaining my reasoning here fair enough and also i've left uh, gary newman off because he also said that he was influenced by craft work but it was more th- he was more influenced by human league weirdly enough so there you go oh. which is interesting but one of the artists i mentioned actually influenced gary newman so it's kind of all click linked in anyway. exactly yeah but um I'll, I'll so start that... off with number five, which is quite a, a random one, really. And I suppose it's more to reflect their influence on hip-hop culture and techno music, which is quite surprising to some people, I suppose. Um, the albums Trans Europe Express and Man's Machine um, connected the, the cold circuitry with warmth and soul, wrote one critic, Gary Mulholland. Uh, reminded us that machines are, after all, the products of dreams of humans. <laughs> there you go. And I thought that was quite a good segue into number five, which is Africa Bambata, who mm-hmm. had a hit with Planet Rock, which was based on the string chords of Trans Europe Express. And it was, um, yeah, it was quite a hit in the oh, late 70s. Mm. And, um, yeah, and I suppose I, I, I suppose I picked 
him specifically because mm. it was it's to sort of reflect the influence upon um, dance music and hip hop that um, Kraftwerk had, and it went on to the Detroit techno scene and the likes of um, a guy called Derek May, mm -hmm. who said that George Clinton and Kraftwerk were stuck in an elevator with only a sequencer to keep them for company. <laughs> um, that's the kind of sound he was trying to go for. Um, yeah. But, you know... Um, it's quite a description. <laughs> I, I suppose I picked that because it's like an, a reflection that Kraftwerk weren't just an influence on synth music or yeah. industrial music or... Kind of you went know, wider kind of in this you know in it, yeah the, their influence is is it, it goes into hip-hop and things like mm -hmm. dr dre even even to this day you know so their influence is kind of massive upon all of all of music really um okay this is quite a controversial one because i and i'm kind of cheating as well um vince <laughs> clark <laughs> because obviously he was in depeche mode he was one of the founder members of depeche mode and who penned a lot of um, synth pop hits in the early 80s um, with their bulk of the band's um, debut LP, Speak and Spell, written by um, Mr. Clark and the rest of the band uh, before he left to, to form Yazoo in 1982. Mm. And I put out various synth pop pop, <laughs> kind of just my teeth in uh synth pop related gems as a uh, situation don't go you know only you etc and his use of synths was quite influential i think and very influential mm -hmm. and obviously mm -hmm. uh um eurasia as well he went on to form yeah uh, mr andy bell um, i'm gonna, just gonna read a quote from uh uh, Vince Clark, just because I'm not, you know, like pulling it out my ass. He basically, he basically, he said that the model was one of the first synth riffs that he ever learned, and there's probably some tape of him somewhere playing the model. Mm -hmm. so I can't, I suppose it's like, you know, that's the more influence on the synth pop mm -hmm. side that uh, Vince. I think, I suppose Vince Clark ref represents that, you know, for me anyway. These are all these are all arguable because you could say, you know, Gary Newman or whoever, but. You know, at the end of the day, I quite like Vince Clark because he sort of spans Depeche Mode, Yazoo, Eurasia. You know what I mean? So that's like three of the big beasts, isn't it? You know, in one. Yeah. Mm. yeah and he's, he, you know, he's an influential figure anyway, isn't he? Massively. Okay. Uh, uh, that's two of them. All right. Um, I'll, I'll just do one more and you can chime in then. Um, uh, right. Um, David Bowie. Right. Um, I, I mean, really, you could do a whole article on David Bowie and I have done this mm -hmm. before of his influence and other people he's been influenced by and who he's worked with but I think um, Kraftwerk were a inf massive influence on his sort of Berlin trilogy mm -hmm. um, there's a few quotes I've got here that he used to play the 22 minute synth symphony autobahn to his fans um, and he also um, on the station to station tour he was gushing about um, Kraftwerk. He said they play noise to music to increase productivity. And he also <laughs> said that um, Kraftwerk, um, he loved Kraftwerk because they weren't stereotypical American chord. They didn't use stereotypical American chord sequences. And he loved their un-rock and roll image, you know, the suits and the android look, mm -hmm. uh, the cold sort of look. Um, he also said that they were folk music for factories, which I like as a quote. But yeah, yeah they, were, they were a massive influence on albums like Station to Station, Low, Heroes, 
I think even um, dedicated a song, uh, Schneider V2 on Heroes. He dedicated that to, obviously, Florian. Mm. Uh, and also Kraftwerk returned the favour by name-checking him and Iggy Pop on Trans Europe Express. So it all, it all fits in. So David Bowie, there you go. Um, any, any thoughts? <laughs> no, no, carry, carry on, carry on. This is, this is great. It's really, really cool. <laughs> I mean, I did consider other people like Daft Punk and people like that, but you know. I think mm-hmm. that's the point. Like the, the influence it's massive, is so isn't wide it? that you can it's endless. literally yeah, just kind of be on. dipping out of any, any yeah. genre. I mean, these are just a very decade. personal... These yeah, are just a very personal reflection of. Uh, it's more of my way of paying a tribute to Florian right, Schneider. Cool, keep going. Craftwork. Okay, two more left. Um, I, I picked out a quote. Um, Peter Hook said mm-hmm. after Florian passed away in the enemy um, this week. He said, "My earliest memory of Craftwork was being han- handed an, e- an LP by Ke- Ian Curtis. He gave me Autobahn, and then later Trans Europe Express." I was absolutely mesmerized by both. Ian suggested that every time Joy Division go on stage, we should go, go on to Trans Europe Express. And we did that from our first show until our last. Obviously, Joy Division were very tight to craft work, but it was only later on when we formed New Order um, that we were able to afford the toys and our primary source of inspiration became let's rip off Kraftwerk. <laughs> and the yeah, music was beguilingly that. simple and impossible to replicate. And I suppose I was listening to songs like um, Thieves Like Us, Blue Monday, mm-hmm. um, Your Silent Face, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Your Silent Face, particularly the, the beginning synth motif is um, a reference to their attempt to copy uh, Kraftwerk's uh, Endless mm. Europe. Okay. Oh, okay. I definitely said A and Curtis. There was definitely something, yeah. you know, almost like in the very uh, sort of. Number two is actually New Order, by the way. <laughs> so, oh. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it's Joy Division New Order, isn't it? You know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But th- I think New Order were massively influenced by Kraftwerk, not just. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's the same with Human League, even though mm-hmm. they say they, you know what I mean? Even though they say they weren't, they were, of course they were. They all were, because it was, they invented that kind of synth. Synthy sound kind of thing. Yeah, so. I agree. So so massively influenced. How could you not, how could that not have? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so they definitely influenced New Order. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you listen to um, New Order's single collection, what's it called again? Google? Substance, the, the double <laughs> album Substance got all their early um, singles on yeah. it. It's an absolutely excellent we, album. It, yeah, shows that, it shows that move from yeah. post-punk into mm-hmm. synth the synth and the uh, the dance music direction that they were going in. Okay, that, one more. That, that, what do you guess my top would be? Like, what would you guess my top? And also, sorry, one more thing about New Order. Um, they weren't just influenced by Kraftwerk's um, uh, sound. They were influenced by the, the look of their albums as well. The, the yeah, kind of... Um, the, the look, the austere kind of um, industrial look of their albums. Peter Saville was definitely influenced by that, I think. Mm. Okay. Quite clinical looking kind of thing. Yeah, it was like a work of art. Yeah, yeah. Using sort of modernistic uh, imagery of of a metropolis and stuff like that, you know. And and, and a lot of these acts, I don't know if you've ever seen um Synth Britannia, which is a great documentary on BBC. No. No, no. I, I recommend anyone to watch that. How the craft work influenced um the synth scenes in Manchester and Sheffield particularly. Uh, and the Northwest, mm-hmm. and how um, also they influenced the New Romantics as well, mm-hmm. and uh, just the the whole story of the synth the synth wave is very interesting. 
Um, okay. Who would you guess I'd have at number one? This is my last one now. <laughs> okay, go on then. Who'd you guess? No, Jim, who'd you guess in? Jim, I think you're the best place to guess this. Most influenced by craft work. Thing is, well, as I said, we were talking about before, I thought it would have been Human League, but obviously mm. not. But mm. um, I think I maybe would have gone Daft Punk. Interesting, yeah. I did consider uh, them. I forgot about Pet Shop Boys as well. Yeah, kind of. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I suppose they were a bit later. But anyway. Um, you could go on and on, really. But I've just chosen one that I think were massively. Who? Who? Okay, it's OMD. A customer oh. Uber's in the dark. <laughs> yeah, from from Liverpool, of course, and mm-hmm. you know, like like Human League, they took that kind of industrial sound and they made it kind of like um, dystopic. All of these bands had like a dystopic ballad. What do you call it? But ballad, ballad. I can't even say the word. Ballad. Belladrian. Belladrian vision. Of uh, like brutalism, yeah, KLF is another one I was going to mention. Yeah. I thought, I thought yeah. one of us might have mentioned them. That was I've got them in other acts, that, uh, yeah, because yeah. you can't, it's only five, so I can't mention everybody. No, of course, so I've tried to pick five that kind of represent different, you know, sides. Anyway, OMD kind of, um, there's a quote from, um, uh, Phil, oh, what's his name? You say Phil, the OMD fella, what's his name? <laughs> I can't remember. Shit. <laughs> Annie McCluskey, yeah. He's the main man. Yeah, he, he quoted that um, it was seeing Kraftwerk play at Liverpool Empire in 1975 mm-hmm. that changed my life forever. Fifteen years later, I told them all about our song Electricity that was a punk homage to their title track, Radioactivity, and they agreed, and they, they already knew. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, yeah, That's there's a also... quote. That's a really good quote. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I, I think I think oh, I I think I put OMD at the top because just the look and the sound and everything mm-hmm. really kind yeah. of overall like, package sort of thing. Yeah, songs like Joan of Arc yeah. and uh, Souvenir, um, Electricity. Yeah. They're all and that first album, um, well, the second album that they had out. Never, I never get the title right, so I better look it up. <laughs> but yeah, the, the, their earlier static as well was very, very craft work, mm-hmm. you know. And I they would never really appreciated how you know early craft work started and sort of yeah you know, pioneered that sound because you think it, it was, was the early seventies. They were kind of a prog band yeah. originally. Yeah, yeah. They were very uh, architecture though, and they? morality was the album that was you know the oh, big okay. OMD one that I mm. think is the most influenced by craft work. But yeah, yeah, they're, they're just a massive influence on on the whole the entirety of pop 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 music, really, and dance music. Yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. To this day, really, and there's a few others like you mentioned, KLF, uh, Daft Punk, Underworld, were another one. Maybe. That's just my brief little synopsis and tribute to uh, Fro- Florian Schneider and Kraftwerk. Nice. And do you yeah. have a new track to play for us as well? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, Club Fuzz and No Heaven. On Libertino Records.
Yeah, Club Foes are quite a, like a young band, really, from Cardiff. And um, this is produced by Tom Reese from the band Buzzard, Buzzard, Buzzard. Yeah. And it's the first release on Libertina Records, which is a great record label in Cardiff. Um, they also put out people like Adwife, uh, Silent Forum, bands like that. Um, I just love that. It's kind of dark and brooding mm. with a kind of Kim deal, kind of menace and uh, almost a bit seedy and dirty and dark, mm. you know, and back alleyway kind of, yeah. It's got an yeah. absolutely great intro, you know, it's just kind of yeah. sort of rumbling along there and you mm. know it's going to be a great track. They're quite influenced by people like Sonic Youth, Pixies, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. I can well. see that. Yeah. Pixies, definitely. Yeah. I can hear I actually that. Prefer, they, they've got, they're a bit like Sonic Youth in terms of they've got two vocalists, but I actually prefer it when Emily sings, and this is one of her, her, mm-hmm. her songs. Yeah, they're a really great, really great up and coming bands. Yeah. Now, I'll definitely be listening to more of their stuff. And if you want to find them on social media, they are at Club Fuzz, but it's spelt C L W B. F-U-Z-Z. So make sure you check them out on Spotify as well. Um, so we've had quite an action-packed show full of content today. Slightly longer than, than normal, but we hope you've enjoyed it. If there are any stories you'd like us to cover, please do get in touch at rockpoprambles at gmail.com. And I just want to say a massive thanks to um, God is in the TV for coming on and, and sharing some really cool tracks with us and some stories from the world of rock, pop and electronic and the band the band <laughs> the guys that got in in the tv do actually have their own podcast which is a music podcast called show me magic it is weekly and it's absolutely awesome so please do check that out wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe and share it up with your friends um i suppose that's it for another week so um all there is to say is over and out <laughs>